welcome back to another episode of Angry Girl Music of the Indie Rock Persuasion. I'm your host, Amanda Starling, here to talk to you about all things intersectional feminism, DIY, and of course the music. This week I'm joined by Susie Richardson Olray of Pogo. Susie is kind of a local legend in Tampa Bay with her role in the second chapter of a prolific 90s emo band. Pogo's popularity arrived with their tie-in on the infamous Emo Diaries Volume 1 compilation, but that was after the band's breakup in the late 90s. With dotted reunions of the band over the last 20 years, Pogo has made a full return with their latest album, Secret Club. Susie shares so much of her personal love of DIY, the community she loves supporting over the years with her co-owned label, New Granada Records, how she shares her experiences living with multiple sclerosis, and her support of inclusivity in music. So let's not keep you all waiting any longer and turn it over to Susie and Pogo.
Thank you so much for joining me, Susie. It's awesome to be in here, in your home, with your cat, who's an angel already, I can tell. She's super chill. Oh, I love it. She's such a sweetheart. I miss having a cat. (laughs) (laughs) Makes things cozy, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, I'm super excited to be able to talk to you about all the things you're doing with Pogo. Um, Your band is incredible. Um, I always feel like when I talk to people about you and your music, it's like we're talking about, we have like an emo legend in Tampa Bay, and it's so cool to have all that. It's accessible, and usually whenever we talk about like emo music or just people in independent music in general that are like you know big names and stuff, they're all in like the Midwest or in the Northeast, mm-hmm. and it's cool to have a piece of that here. Yeah, yeah, we have a pretty. I mean, we had a pretty solid scene back in the day. I mean, we still do. It's, you know, it fluctuates. Yeah, yeah, but you know, for a while there, we were we were getting out there for a little bit, mm-hmm. and you know, Keith and I have stayed active with the label. And I mean, we're still playing and stuff, but I yeah. mean, mainly focusing on the label for a long time. So that was a way for us to still stay involved. And then when it felt right, we just decided to go back to Pogo. That's so exciting. And I love that about, of course, everything they're doing because, you know, New Granada has been a presence for over 20 years now. And then you get to have your hand in the music as much as feels right for your life, too, which is mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah, yeah. It's been good. That's wonderful. Well, the kind of like backtrack, of course, I want to talk a little bit about how you first kind of became involved in music. When did you first start learning to play? Uh, I got a guitar when I was 14. Okay. I got an acoustic guitar for Christmas and um, just, I don't even remember how I decided I wanted to start playing. I just, you know, I had always loved to sing and it just seemed like the next gradual step for me. Yeah. Um, my parents told me that when I was a kid, I would, like, write songs at the end of the day, like, when I was falling asleep about stuff that happened to me during the day. <laughs> That's cool. Was, like, always singing around the house. And, yeah. Um, so I got an acoustic guitar, and then the next Christmas I got an electric guitar. Oh, nice. And uh, I started playing with my best friend. I was, she was 14, and I was 15. Mm-hmm. So she... She had been a cellist, and she started playing bass, and we started writing songs together, and it was just like this really cool thing to experience with your best friend. Oh yeah, that's special, because that's like, you have that intimate relationship of already being close as friends, and then when you're learning music together, I'm sure that's just an even better experience. Yeah, yeah. That's so awesome. Do you remember there being like, um, a first song that you wanted to learn how to play, or like, band that you were really excited about? Um... I think for me, personally, if you were to nail it down to one person, it would be Julian Hatfield. Okay, cool. Hands down. Um, that Julian Hatfield 3 record, not even Hey Babe, which was the first solo record before before Julian Hatfield 3, after Blake Babies. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't get into that. I got into uh, Become What You Are first. And um, I just remember hearing this mousy, sweet voice, you know, thinking about being awkward and shy and (laughs) just, like, not fitting in, but wanting to to still be heard, and I I felt like, wow, that's, maybe I can do that, you know? Yeah. Um, And it it gave me some motivation to think that maybe I could, so. That's an awesome voice to hear probably as, like, a teenager, too, because they're like, well, this person can make music, and it makes that kind of impression on me. What can I do? Yeah. Yeah. That's so awesome. I love the sound of that. And um, 
were there any like influences for you as you were learning to play music that kind of started to shape your style at all? Um, at the time, we were listening to a lot of like uh, I don't know, like 120 minutes alternative stuff. You know? oh, that's cool. Um, and then I was going to high school. She was at a different school, but I was going to high school mm-hmm. uh, with a friend who was also taking guitar lessons at the same guitar guitar place, uh, Paragon, on Hills Red. Oh, sweet. So that's really close by. Yeah. I mean, this, they don't do it anymore. This was back in the day. There's actually yeah. like a rock school scenario. Um, so Joel, my friend and I, we were listening to more like, you know, we got intro to all that stuff from our big sisters, you know, so like the Pixies and Excess. Yeah. You too. Um, know that kind of like mainstream alternative but Mm -hmm. then we started getting into punk rock a little bit more and um we were just getting I don't know we never really like got riot girly I think we were too young for it Mm -hmm. then um when we were that young but we you know we gravitated towards female musicians just because um they were examples for us you yeah know? so I think like PJ Harvey and um you know Kim Deal and the Pixies and stuff like that you know girls like that you know yeah that's awesome because you know when you whenever you start to see people in front of you that are writing and playing music to that um direction that you want to go at some point it becomes easier to see your own path and what you what you're capable of musically I'm sure mm-hmm. well and I think as a kid it was just it was just more of a Imitation as flattery, you know, mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, she's doing that's what I'm gonna do, and then, and then, you know, as you get, you know, this, it's the easiest way to learn something, and then you kind of find your own feet, and you start maybe trying to start putting chords together and stuff yeah. on your own, and um, so it's definitely a good starting point. You know? Absolutely, and this was, I was 15, it was 1992, 93, mm-hmm. so it was the 90s, it was, you know, it was, it was when, you know, women rock started getting all the attention, and Yeah, was fawning all over everyone to, you know, get the next Sarah McLaughlin, you know? Yeah, um, I just remember so many bands, like, of course I found them a little bit later, but, you know, I remember bands like, you know, the Raincoats and all that becoming a big deal, and everybody wanted to have, like, female-fronted artists and have that kind of approach to the music, and it, at times it was like, it seems like looking back on that, it's like, okay, maybe part of it was a trend, part of it was an actual movement, it mm-hmm. was always both, it seemed like, mm-hmm. but that's yeah. really cool that, you know, you were able to kind of see that happening in front of you. Yeah, <laughs> it was, it was perfect timing, you know, yeah. um, for my formative years as a musician, it was perfect. Yeah, because at that point it probably felt accessible, because you had these other examples that were out there, and mm-hmm. that's really exciting, um, so there were, you played in bands before Pogo and such, what did those teach you as a musician? Um, I was in the one band with my best friend, mm-hmm. and it was just the it was just the three of us. Um, I played guitar, she played bass, and her boyfriend played drums. And we started out at rock school, but then you know we met kids that were also playing there, and then we found out about like. Um, um, all ages open mic like there was a bar it's still there it's 
in a different location now. There's a bar called U- at, by USF called the Brass Mug. Yeah. And they used to do all ages shows on Sundays. Mm-hmm. And then for about a year and a half, there was a venue called the Stone Lounge on Nebraska mm-hmm. that also did all ages open mic, and um, they would do. That's how that's how we started getting on shows. Cool. Because you know, we would just. We just found there were so many venues then, and we could play like two or three times a month. It's not really like that anymore. In no, Tampa. not in Tampa. Um, it's it's tricky. It seems like we fluctuate when it comes to like what venues are accessible to different people, which ones aren't. And yeah. What are all ages and which ones are just bars only? And well, not all even that. not even accessibility, just availability of venues. Yeah. And, and there's not really that interest to see. You know, like, if Pogo was playing three times in a month locally, yeah. like, I don't really know anyone would care right now. Like, I don't, I think there's just a little bit of an ebb yeah. in, in the scene in general. Um, but, um, so yeah, so we did the all-ages stuff, and that's how we get started getting on shows. Yeah. And, you know, we would play, we played everywhere, and then there was a band called Pogo. Yeah. <laughs> but, um actually asked us to go on tour with them so it was the week that we graduated I graduated from high school um, we went for five days we did the Florida dates my my little pop punk trio that's awesome um, yeah I was 17 the rest of the band was 16 mm-hmm. we took a drummer's mini his mom's minivan <laughs> and uh we played like Fort Pierce Gainesville Daytona Atlanta And we put out a record. We put out a seven inch, mm-hmm. and we were New Granada three, number three. Wow! Um, and at that cool. point, it was still a co-op. Yeah. Um. So it was basically you do everything. Mm-hmm. You, know, you pay for the recording, you pay for the press, and you do the artwork. You know, which for us was just kinkos. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, but you have like an imprint. You know. Yeah. And it's got a release number, and it, it, it had some air of legitimacy to it, you know. So it was really cool to be a part of that at such a young age. Yeah. And get a feel for, you know, even just stuff like introduce yourself to the sound man mm-hmm. and be nice to the staff and tip the bartender. You know what I mean? Like, getting to know that kind of stuff as a kid, I think, was really helpful for me moving forward, you know. And... It's been helpful, too, when we kind of mentor younger bands, you know, like, we can kind of set them up yeah. on the right path, you know, like, this is how you should go about doing things. You know? Absolutely. Well, it's cool, because it sounds like you got to have your hand in, like, almost every aspect of DIY, because you actually have to shape your record itself, mm-hmm. and then you learn about the behaviors that are, like, you know, best for touring and stuff, so mm-hmm. it's really awesome that you had that kind of experience at such a young age, yeah. too. Yeah. That really sets a really great tone for you, I'm sure, as, like, a person and a musician at that point. Yeah, it was great. Um, and my parents were really cool to let me do that at such a young age. Yeah. I mean, they, they really trusted me. And I wasn't, I mean, I was a straight-edge kid. I, I didn't do drugs. I um, uh, didn't drink. So it wasn't about that. It was more about the community and mm-hmm. the scene and, and everything as a kid. So That's and awesome. Still now, but, you know, it was never about partying. Yeah. Well, that bleeds into punk sometimes as the party culture takes over, sometimes over the music, and it's like, ah, I'm more into the community myself, yeah. so. I just want to be a part of something. 
Yeah, that's so cool that you were able to find your space within that, too. Mm -hmm. That's really special. And then you found your way into Pogo over time because their previous front left. And how was that experience for you? It was weird. Um, I mean, it was all, it all happened in a very small window. Mm -hmm. Um, But the singer quit, and they asked me to join within, like, a week. And I quit band that I was in. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a bad scene. I <laughs> tell them what I was doing. Yeah. Um, and then we played our first show like a month later. Um, but Keith and Matt had both expressed interest in asking me to be in the band. Sure. And um, like to each other. And when the first time I practiced with them, it was pretty seamless. Mm-hmm. But awkward, but um, the 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 collaboration I would say was seamless. The interaction was awkward. Sure, you got to build up that bond over time. Um, And it it was always easy, always always super easy. Do you mean just being able to play together, or that's really cool? Because whenever you're able to just instantly connect with people as musicians, I feel like the rest starts to come together. Yeah, that's so cool. And the fact that you had toured together at some point had at least some friendship going on there and so on so yeah that's really cool well I'm glad to hear that because it just seems like that was such a very fast time and Mm -hmm. then fast forward 20 years and here you are making music again so yeah Yeah, I mean we were only really in I was really only in the band from like January 96 to like spring in 97 ish and um then Keith quit and we broke up, obviously, because he quit. And we weren't dating. I mean, the band broke up. Yeah. And then we got back together to do one more show when the record came out mm-hmm. in 98, in the spring of 98. And then Keith and I didn't start dating until summer of 99. Mm-hmm. And then we got married in August of... We got engaged in December of 99 and, and married in August of 2000. That's awesome. And so... Um, we weren't actually playing together in a band when we started dating, but, um, so it was a weird kind of... Timeline? Yeah. <laughs> you know, falls together, but, um, it's just so second nature to me at this point. It's like, yeah, duh, of course I'm here. You know, it just <laughs> makes sense. No, that's so, awesome. Yeah. So what motivated you and the rest of the band to begin writing and putting together a secret club? Well... You know, we had we had reunited over the years for, on you know, because we do the Christmas night show and yeah, um, and I think that this last time we decided to play together, it's we were having so much fun, mm-hmm. and the last time I reunited with the band, I couldn't really play my parts because I was having some symptom problems sure. with my hands. Um, but I committed to playing every day and I just, I felt, it was just, it was just something that I wanted to focus on. Yeah. Um, and we all did because I think it was cathartic and we were just at a point in our lives where it's like, why aren't we doing this? Mm-hmm. You know, um, Matt had done King of Spain for a long time, put out a couple albums and his bass player moved away. And um, 
Keith and I are still doing rec center, but that had slowed down, you know, considerably. Um, because uh, our guitarist Mike got married, and our cellist, you know, she's a orchestra teacher, and she has two kids. And yeah, it's like life stuff. Um, and there was just a window of opportunity, and we just went for it. That's so awesome. And I think it was after after we got ready for this last reunion show. Um, we said, let's do this once a month. Yeah. You know, no expectations, no goals, no, no end in sight, no nothing. Let's just play. Yeah. Just because we want to play. And Matt showed up with a riff of practice, and we wrote a song in an hour, <laughs> and it's like, whoa. And then I started writing songs, and it was like a faucet. Mm-hmm opened up you know it was amazing and within a year we had you know an album's worth of songs and I said you know it's like we should we need to record this stuff you know and we could have gone to Atomic that's where we've done everything over the years yeah um but I also felt like what are we waiting for you know like Again, still no expectations. Sure. But let's just take advantage of the fact that we're grown up and we have, you know, you know, the financial availability to do this. Yeah. And, you know, if we could record anywhere, you know, literally. Yeah. For me, there were two choices. Tiny Telephone in San Francisco, because mm-hmm. that's John Vanderslice's studio. And yeah. And Magpie Cage in Baltimore, because that's Jay Robbins. Yeah. Obviously, logistically... It's more feasible to go the East Coast. It is, yeah. Across the country. <laughs> um, and it's Jay Robbins, who is hugely influential on all of us. Yeah. Um, you know, was part of the whole post-hardcore DC scene. And everyone that we talked to told us what an amazing guy he is, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was, and so I said, I was like, let's just go make this record. Let's just go yeah. do it, you know? We, real, we, we decided... That if we had, like, the prep time, if we practiced for, like, three months, if we got ready, you know, if we just hammered the songs out for, like, two hours mm-hmm. once a week, and I played at home every day, and, and you know, we really just, we, we thought that maybe we could track all the songs in five days. Yeah. <laughs> and we did. That's amazing. Um, so we tracked everything, and then vocals and everything, and then he mixed it about six weeks. So all of this happened within, like, a year of us writing the songs. Wow, that's incredible to be able to just, like, have it all come out and just put it together in such a period of time. It's just amazing. And that's never happened. Um, I mean, I've been recording. Mm-hmm. I'm 42. I started playing when I was 15, so you know that. <laughs> I've never finished, tracked something in five days. Yeah. You know, it's, it's never happened. It was just this crazy, beautiful whirlwind. You know, we drove up. It was a 14-hour drive. Yeah, it's a long um, drive to go that far up the East Coast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the first day we tracked was the day of the um, solar eclipse. Wow. So there was some magic in the air, I think. I don't know. That's you know? awesome, though. So we loaded in all of our gear. Yeah. We, um, I think we got all of our mic sounds. But we took a break because mm-hmm. Jay promised his son that he would go watch the eclipse with him. 
Nice. Did so, you go look at the eclipse too? We did, yeah. Awesome. We met our <laughs> friends. Um, we have some friends in a band called Brushes in okay. Baltimore. So um, we met some of them for lunch and we had our, you know, NASA approved sunglasses. <laughs> and then she made some, our friend Anna made some of those, you know, bit cereal boxes. And yeah. Stuff. So we went, we loaded all of our stuff, got everything ready. We went and had lunch, <laughs> watched the eclipse, and then we came back and we started tracking. Cool. And we did all of the drum tracks that first day. So we did all of them. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. And uh, Brian had finished his bass by, he left by Wednesday. He's such an amazing bass player. He only needed to do like two fixes. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and it took me a little longer to do guitar because A, I'm, was and still not thinking about it, terrified about the prospect of playing guitar in front of Jay Robbins. <laughs> sure. Um, and I have dexterity problems, mm -hmm. you know, and even though I had been preparing for a long time, I kind of choked a little bit while we were up there, you know. Well, it's a challenge because you're in front of somebody who has recorded and worked with so much music that you've admired for so long, and then also, you're trying to do your best for something that you're really passionate and excited yeah. about. So yeah. that's a lot of emotions to have up there while you're trying to make this record. And he was amazing. I yeah. Mean, he was infinitely patient. And that's just something that you, a skill you have to have when you're working with someone in the studio anyway. But, yeah. Um, you know, I was the one putting pressure on him. He wasn't. Sure. Um, so I feel like I'm just talking. No, this is what I want, please. <laughs> it's awesome. So, yeah, working with Jerry Robbins is cool. That's amazing. What an incredible opportunity. And then you're able to kind of take it back whenever the mixing and mastering has happened. And then um, you ended up ultimately having New Granada put out the record, right? We did. Uh, we shopped it. Yeah. And honestly, I, you know, it was worth a shot. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we're not really in a place where we can like tour behind it or you know promote the hell out of it or whatever so if someone had put it out that would have been cool just because we lost the label has significantly slowed down because we lost distribution a couple of years ago yeah and um we sought out individual distribution just for this one record mm -hmm. and so we got stateside and then we also have digital still we never lost that luckily but yeah um we got a uk label to put it out in europe it's also we got a japanese label to put it out over there mm -hmm. and that way we could keep the pressing small mm -hmm. and i mean like we only sent each label 50 copies okay you know what i mean like so they helped pay for it but it, i mean the scale on, on that we're working on right now is it's almost like, like if I wanted to make it sound posh, I could say it was boutique. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but it's, it's just exclusive. Yeah, <laughs> it's limited. Um, it's numbered. So, but um, yeah. So you know, I think I think the goal right now is just to keep it to a manageable number. Sure. You know? And um, so the record came out. And we toured this year, which was insane. And then um, I wound up in the hospital after that, which we can talk about later. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. But the tour was really cool. Um, it took a lot of prep, a lot of planning. Oh, I'm sure. Um, I mean, already it does, but then you factor in the whole I can't walk, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, which yeah, definitely too. complicates everything. Um, so, like, we took a couple of ramps with us, and we had to make sure that, you know, the main the main goal was, does the venue have an accessible bathroom? Yeah, that's important, because that's, that's, like, <laughs> you know, bare minimum, I would imagine, and yeah. then, like, if you brought your ramp, I'm sure it makes stages a little bit more accessible at that point, but it's probably not perfect. See, it's interesting that you mentioned that, because I've talked to friends, um, I have a friend who does a um, non-profit geared toward providing accessible venues with people like epilepsy and different other mm-hmm. situations because you know lighting at shows for example that can be something that can yeah. deter an entire group of people from being able to attend and you mentioning restroom accessibility and stuff that's important too it is yeah <laughs> I mean it's it's kind of a double-edged sword though because I mean when something's punk rock mm-hmm. you maybe don't have money yeah to make it accessible, because that shit's expensive. It definitely you know can I mean? be. I mean, that ramp in front of our house, that cost us $10,000. Yeah, it's... You know what I mean? Yeah, it's um, expensive. So, I almost make it incumbent upon myself mm-hmm. to, if it's not accessible, I make it accessible for myself, you know what I mean? That's like, a really good attitude toward it, yeah. Well, that's all you can do, you sure. know I mean? It's either you either make it work or, you know sit it out mm-hmm. you know I mean that's literally all I can do so um you don't want to have to sit it out that's no, for sure no and 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 it's not because people are being you know inconsiderate mm-hmm. or um exclusionary it's just maybe they don't have money to do you know what I mean like stuff like that and, and absolutely so and so I think that I think that accessibility is you know obviously important um but I think there also has to be some willingness on someone who has the disability mm-hmm. to um, not make it work for themselves, but also maybe educate the people around them. Yeah. Um, a lot of people don't realize that there are barriers until you're faced with them yourself. Absolutely. You know? um, things you don't even think about, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so even just you know, from an educational perspective, talking about that stuff can be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So. And that's definitely one of the things that, like, I've respected about you, reading, like, different interviews, listening, and so on, is that you're so open to talking about things like MS and being able to share your story in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if this isn't an appropriate question, I apologize, but, like, um, what kind of motivates you to continue to share your story in such a way? Or 
And, and it's not even like me, like sitting down, like, oh, I'm a fighter. I'm going to fight this. No, dude, I just want to play guitar. Yeah. I just want to go to a show. I just want to drive my van. You know, I just, I just want to cook dinner, you know? Yeah. Um, just shit like that. So I think that I just, I just want to maintain as much of what's normal and comfortable to me. And we've had to make a lot of concessions over the years. Um, but that's just what I've had to do. Sure. You know, I mean, I don't, I, I think as far as playing music is concerned, what motivates me is that I need it to be functional yeah. and like healthy. Um, it's therapeutic for me. It always has been. But especially since my diagnosis, which was, you know, 17 years ago, it has been a function of, you know, um, well, not a function, it's, it's, it's allowed me to function, I should yeah, say, you know. I could see that. Um, because there's just so much darkness and shit, you know, there's a lot of loss, there's a lot of grieving. Yeah. Um. able to to write about that is just such a gift definitely you know? um so I think that I think there's just something inside me that just keeps keeps me going yeah I mean it's pushing you forward in that sense and like the music it's such um it's such an amazing gift that you have with your music because I feel like your record was actually the most like honest and open that I think I've heard out of anything this year or in a long time. It's it's amazing to me because you just share so much of yourself in ways that I see musicians who've been playing for like 20 years plus, I don't think I've ever heard them be that honest before about their feelings just in general. And it seems like everything from what you've written, everything from like business mode to listening to um, the last song on the record just really it felt universal in some ways. And I know that that was part of the intention of your songwriting yes. too, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, because I don't know about you, but as a listener, you know, when I'm listening to records, I, you know, I take whatever I hear and I'm, I apply it to my own life, yeah. you know, and like, and, and sometimes I'll formulate these stories in my brain that aren't even remotely what the song's about, but it makes me feel better and like, I can, I can just hear a song and have it instantly soothe me. Mm-hmm. That is the biggest gift to me. Yeah. You know, and, and I feel like if I write something and maybe someone can relate to it in some way, then, then that's pretty cool. Yeah. You know? Um, but even if just people listen to it and enjoy it and find the tune, you know, enjoyable, you know, you don't have to walk away with some emotional gravitas about, you know, the subject <laughs> matter. Just as if you enjoy singing along to it, you know, sometimes that's all you need to feel better. Yeah. Um. That's what I like about your music, though, is that you can have both experiences very thoroughly. Because, you know, the first time I listened to it, I had the very heavy emotional response to it. And then the second time around, I sat back and, like, because I do this almost in layers. I do, like, um, almost, okay, I'm going to process the lyrics first, and then I'm going to process the music, and then I'm going to process it all at once. And it was just amazing to be able to do that with your music because it felt so layered because of that. Wow, that's really cool. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. It was just so much fun to unpack the record, so... Thank you for writing an awesome <laughs> record. It's just so impactful. I hope more people continue to absorb it because it's so cool. Thank you. That means a 
Um, it just, it, I don't know, I think that playing in band with my husband, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, Matt was the best man in our wedding. Yeah. Brian, we've been playing with since the 90s. Um, you have those kind of deep roots with people. Yeah. I think that it comes across, hopefully, in, in the way we communicate, you know, sonically with each other. Absolutely. Um, Definitely. I mean, Matt can, I can, I can bring a song to practice and Matt will start playing something. And I have never once said, mm -hmm. I don't like that. Yeah. Or maybe try it this way. Like he'll play something and I'll go, uh-huh. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's or, special. Or Keith will say, I know you wrote it like this, but I hear it like this. Yeah. And he'll play it with a completely different beat and flip it on its head and it's, Revelation, you know, it's come like what I didn't think about it this way. Yeah. Um, and then you know Brian, as I said, is an amazing bass player, but he plays everything. Mm -hmm. He plays drums. He plays bass. He plays guitar. He was also a guitar tech for Saves the Day mm -hmm. and Hey Mercedes back in the day. That's so so cool. <laughs> he, like, <laughs> he's amazing. Yeah. Like. If something's no sounds coming out, I just look at him and he immediately walks over and starts fuck, which is nice for me too because I can't walk up to my amp and yeah, you know, that's that's frustrating for me. But um, to have somebody who knows exactly what to do and to probably also make it sound the way that you need it yeah. to is even better. He had gaffer tape on my amp, on all of our amps with the settings on it already. Wow, that's and cool. He had um, gaffer tape on every piece of gear with a number on it. Cool. So he would load it back in the van. It was like Tetris, like numbered Tetris. Yeah. So he knew how to put it all back together. That's so cool. And, you know, he like he likes to putter, so he would like change our strings or do this or that or uh -huh. you know like. Damn, what a nifty person to have in the band, right? <laughs> um, and you know, it's just been this whole experience in the past few years has just been so satisfying. And I think the cool part, too, is that, you know, like I said, we didn't have any expectations, you know? Yeah. Um, I was listening to um, the live fest podcast. With oh, thanks. Yeah. Um, you know, I was just listening to, I remember when she started playing. Yeah. And she, and, and I did this as a teenager, too. You know, you like you, you kind of kneel your leg up a little bit and kind of bend your your guitar forward a little bit. So yeah. You see what, and I, I remember her doing that and just being so excited for her, yeah, you know, and and almost having like that, almost like rediscovering, mm -hmm. it was like for me, I hope maybe it was like for her when she started playing, to have that feeling again, yeah, you know, playing with Hogo and, and redis like, that, I miss the rock so much, that fucking, you know, just like stomping on my pedal, yeah, you know, um, I mean, Rec Center, super fun, mm-hmm, very mellow, kind of like seventies AM radio, almost sure. like singer song or singer songwritery stuff. But you get to rock out with Pogo, and that that it's that kind of catharsis and that noise. Yeah. Um, and the the endorphins, the mm -hmm. adrenaline. You know, like you you don't get that. You just don't get it. Any, I can get it from anything else except maybe exercising. Um, but it's still not the same. Never quite the same as when you experience music in that way. Yeah. 
That's so awesome. Well, it's so great that you have been able to just unlock that again with Pogo. Seriously. In this record, I feel like showcases so much of it. I was just like, I felt like I was just constantly like feeling everything that y'all were feeling through the music and such. Um, do you have a favorite song that was like so much fun to record and then maybe which one you like to play live? I like to play reprise live. Yeah? A lot. It's like you just sing from like here. Yeah. You know, like, like I'm like people listening. I'm <laughs> punching myself right in the middle of my chest. Singing, <laughs> like, I sing from this space that, yeah. I, you know, like I have to really dig. Yeah. And it's, it feels so good. Um, That's powerful, then. Yeah, yeah. And I think that I think that recording Easterberg was probably the most satisfying for me. That's a powerful song, um, too. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, uh, I had realized that I had been at the same job for 10 years. Yeah. And it was my 30s. Yeah. You know, like, I started the job when I was 29. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh, holy shit. Yeah. You know, like what have I been doing for the past 10 years? I mean, we had been doing things, but I sure. think just the realization that 10 years of my life has like, gone into that place, yeah. gone, you know, um, that was what was so, and we started writing the song. It was meant to be, the reason why it's called Easterberg is because on the first record, the last song was called um, Westerberg. Okay. And um, it was called Westerberg because it was about me being Kobe's replacement. Yeah. Because Paul Westerberg is the singer of the replacements. Yeah. So that's why it's called I Westerberg. love that. So, <laughs> so Matt started this, and it sounded like it, and I was like, this would be a good companion. So we're like, let's just call it Easterberg. Yeah. And so we did that, and, you know, I really, when I, even when I was getting ready with my guitar playing stuff, like, I was staying around the house for three months because, like, I work from home. Mm-hmm. And I'm here a lot. Um, yeah. And I just and I just go around the house singing. But it was helpful for me to know how I wanted to approach all my vocals and everything. Yeah. And Keith and I even, like, sat down and talked about it. Because he's my he's my gold standard. Like, if he says something's good, mm-hmm. sounds good, the take is good, then I know the take's good. That's awesome. Um, but recording with Jay, recording vocals, was totally different than anything we'd ever done before. Just because of the time frame, but also because... Like he wasn't necessarily like he's he's the engineer, mm-hmm. and then as the as the record goes on, you know, like if he decides he wants producer credits because he's you know contributing, yeah, or he's got feedback or whatever, and then he'll you know say something. Sure. Um, so when you have someone who's just engineering your record, like at Atomic or something, like if they do, you think that was a good take? Sure. I mean, like that's not his job. You yeah. Know what I mean. But when he was recording my vocals, what he would do um, is I would sing it four times through, uh-huh. and then he would compile um, like a greatest hits. Nice. And he would take all four uh-huh. and just put it together, and like, here's your song. So I didn't know he was going to do that, so it was extra helpful going into those vocals ahead yeah. of time that I was so prepared. And one thing he also didn't do. Um, you know, when you're recording vocals, you're in the sound booth, and they're all in the control room, and you can't hear them unless they press the top mic. Yeah. Um, but he never took the top mic off. Huh. So I could hear his reactions. Yeah? What was and that was like? like <laughs> it's pretty insane. <laughs> so I, like, that, like, one time I heard him go, 
And I was like, that's, these, <laughs> is that from what I did? Yeah. Like, that's, that's Jay Robbins. Yeah, making that reaction to you. And I was like, I felt my, my heart go into my stomach, and uh-huh. I was like, dude, I, I need to fucking bring it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I think it just, like, pushed me to try harder. That's so cool, um, though. Because I wanted to, I, I don't know, I, I wanted to impress him. Yeah. Um, who wouldn't at that point when you're yeah. in that kind of opportunity? Yeah. So, that, and, and, and I listen to that record now. Yeah. And, and I am proud of it. I mean, I still, it's still a knee-jerk reaction to pick it apart, I think. Sure, you're an artist that's you instinctive. it's going to do that, you know, like, and, like, we forgot that we had the CD in the van the other day because we were driving around listening to it a few months ago. And yeah. So Keith accidentally hit the CD, you know, switch over on the, and I was like, oh, it's the crowd van. I was like, no, I don't, he's like, what's the matter? I'm like, I don't know. I don't want to hear it. And then I was like, ah. So. That's so um, funny. I run into that with my partner too with his music because that's the same situation. Mm-hmm. Like I'll put on his record. Sometimes he'll be all about it. And then sometimes he'll be like, not today. I don't want to hear this right yeah, now. Because yeah. <laughs> I'll start picking apart, too. So yeah. that's so funny that you do the same thing. Yeah, I mean, it's hands down the best thing we've ever recorded. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds pristine. Um, we told him what we wanted it to sound like. He delivered, you know, with, like, fun colors, you know. And then yeah. it turns out that the guy that mastered the record was actually in a band that toured with Brian back in the day. Oh, wow. And both their bands were on Doghouse Records. So it was like this full circle moment. It like, seems like it. Yeah. So, it, you know, it's just this whole process is, you know, we've been reacquainting ourselves not only with the music, but also with the people that, you know, it's cool to see people that are still in it. Yeah. Know? They're in still kind of a part of the story, too, yeah. in that sense, too. Um, and it just feels like we're, like, we're rooted. Yeah, you know, in in the community, not in not even on a local level, like it's just because we've been involved for so long, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and it's nice to have that foundation. Absolutely, because you know? it sounds like you know you've been able to experience it from your youth all the way up into the present, and as a result, it's like DIY just has that massive impression on you. Mm-hmm. Has it really? How do you feel about DIY now after experiencing all that and still having parts of it existing in your career now? Oh, it's absolutely still here because that's the only way we booked that tour. Yeah. You know, it's it's nearly impossible to book a tour unless you have those kind of like DIY resources mm-hmm. or a booking agent. Yeah. You know? Um, it's nearly impossible. Um and Keith managed to book all the dates. Like we didn't have we didn't have a single date. We had ten solid, you know, ten dates. Mm-hmm. No days off. Um, and it was crazy because, you know, talking about circling back to those connections, like, I had met Kate and Kaya and Bill from Rain Maria. We met them and we played with them in, like, 1999. Yeah. And that was it. Like, we played one show with them and maybe, you know, they came through a few times. But they came out to Fest. They came to Pre-Fest last year. Yeah. And they came to the record store and it was like Kate and I had known each other from minute one. Yeah. Because um, we had all the same shared experiences. Definitely. And we just hit it off like gangbusters and we reconnected and it's super cool to have that um, that person in my court now. You know? Absolutely. Um, and 
same thing with like um, you know like when we played in Richmond we played with this band Positive No and the singers Tracy Wilson she was in a band in the 90s called Dahlia Seed you know like one of the few emo bands with, with a you know a woman singer yeah um, and one of the guys another band that played was in this he was in this band that we played with in September called Long Arms but back in the day in the 90s he was in a band called Fun Size and you know so we're all still doing it yeah it's still on a DIY level um but it's a scope that's comfortable to us that feels yeah. good to us that you know we don't feel um like we're too big for or too little for you know it's just yeah like, it's comfortable um, for you yeah. and you get to have like that essence of control of what feels right for you in the moment yeah you don't have to like feel like you have to bow down to what a label tells you you should be doing right now or what management says you should be doing it's more so it's like okay this feels good for this moment of life and this is what we'll do yeah exactly on terms yeah totally and and the cool thing about where we're at as a band is that we can kind of dip our toes in the punk emo scene and also an indie rock scene like we played Athens Pop Fest yeah you know what I mean that was a completely different you know than playing best yeah you know on on a completely different level yeah, um, that's such a cool experience, too. And there's so many independent music festivals that continue to pop up. But I like the DIY ones better than, like, the big major festivals and stuff because I think you get to have more of that real community aspect to it still. And that's cool that you kind of get to experience so many different ones because you have the Athens one, then you have the Fest, which is, like, the biggest of all the yeah. solid DIY yeah, festivals yeah, anymore. So yeah. I love Fest. It's so yeah. great. Yeah, um, you know, Fest got started after we were kind of already done. Yeah, because um, that was like early 2000s when yeah. it really started. But we knew Tony mm-hmm. um, from Swank. We played with Swank in Richmond or Roanoke way back. In yeah. Um, so, you know, we, it was cool that he wound up down here mm-hmm. with no idea people, um, you know, with like Bar and everyone back in the day. And I think it's so cool that he's doing it with zero corporate sponsorship. Yeah. All you know, volunteers and, you know, only a small staff. Yeah. It's really fucking impressive. It's amazing what's accomplished. And it's basically a giant family reunion. He's basically planning a family reunion every year. It's special because of that. Yeah. Yeah, Because you get that aspect. And I love how much cultivation that has occurred between him and his team to, like, get up-and-coming DIY bands having a space. Like, there's so many great Florida bands that either have the emo influence or the punk influence mm-hmm. and even the hardcore. It's, like, everybody gets a shot is yeah. what it feels like. Yeah, and it just, it's it's this weird space where these really cool things happen yeah. over a really short period of time. Like, for example, Report Suspicious Activity, which Jay Robbins is in, yeah. they were playing. Well, it turns out that one of the bands he recorded needed a fill-in bass player, mm-hmm. and they were playing the same, they were playing Lucy's three slots after us. Yeah. So we got to hang out with him all night long. That's so cool. You know what I mean? Like, you get to reunite Lucy, then. Lucy's is like this really cool central location, you know, yeah. everybody buy the hot dog cart and, you know, the pizza tent, and everybody comes by, and um, everybody comes to get their, you know, fried rice, their vegan fried rice. Hell yeah. All the bands. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, we got to talked to Warren Women for a little bit, and I got to meet Zick Bondi, who is, you know, like a punk rock fucking heavyweight yeah. legend. Um, so all of that, you know, that, that's one of the reasons why I love Fest. And we've only been a couple times. We went to see Braid 
at eight seconds when they did frame the canvas. Yeah. Um, and then we played a couple of times. Um, but, you know, one thing I will say about Fest is they are super, super on it for me. You know, yeah. if, if, and, and I think it's just an awareness from the attendees also. Yeah. Um, people like, it's like parting the Red Sea. Yeah. They see me coming, they get out of the way. Mm-hmm. And it's, and you know, like, um, if there's a, a bathroom with that's only got one thing accessible, they check check with me first yeah you know to make sure I need it and you know stuff like that like the the, the um, stage manager was very concerned when he saw me yeah he's like, how are you going to get on stage and I'm like oh they're just going to carry me <laughs> but even like when they picked me up and put me on so like he was still like standing there like yeah like ready to catch me you know and so that consideration and thoughtfulness um is is really refreshing yeah, I love that that's, like, a part of, like, the DNA of Fest now. It's just that consideration for people consistently. I mean, you'll get your occasional asshole in the crowd here and there, but for the most part, people are just consistently... Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> people are, like, consistently pretty much there for each other at any point throughout the weekend. So yeah. that's awesome that that just continues to be an experience for you there, too. Yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, I think that, you know, playing all these other venues, you know, there aren't a lot of disabled musicians, let's be frank, mm-hmm. you know? So it's not even about, um, I don't think so, I didn't, and we talked about this already, but at this point, I don't feel like it's about, um, I feel like I'm still at an education point. Sure. You know what I mean? Because, and I, I think me being so dogged may be a detriment to me because there's not a lot of people who want to try mm-hmm. as hard as I do to make shit happen. So there's not going to be a lot of me or the people like me. Sure. I mean, I, mean ha- I follow, there's a disabled musicians hashtag on Instagram. Okay. It's really cool. Yeah. I need to check that out um, then. And I also follow She Shreds. Mm-hmm. Um, great organization. Great yeah, people. Yeah. But, um, there's just not a lot of representation. So I think it's less about, you know, as a disabled woman. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I've worked in HR for 20 years, so I'm a triple threat. I'm a triple protected class. Because yeah. I'm over 40, I'm a woman, and I'm disabled. Yeah. So, like, you know, from an HR perspective, from, <laughs> from a libel standpoint, you know. Yeah. But from a diversity perspective, still, also, you know. Like, yeah. Um, I got three things working against me, you know, and it's almost like the being a woman is less of a concern for me, because on the one hand, like, are we really still doing this or no? Yeah, it feels like that, for sure, yeah. When we played Fest, someone pointed, the door guy pointed to me and she said, is your issue your plus one? You know, yeah. It's like, come on now. That's frustrating. It's really still a thing, really. Um, and it just makes you roll your eyes now. Yeah, it's like, less about on. that and less about, and more about people just assuming that I'm not in the band because I'm disabled. Yeah. You know, um, until, because what I'll do is I'll kind of like, I can't, that's one thing I hate. Like, I was never just the singer, you know. I was the guitarist. I loaded gear. I worked the merch table. Yeah. I carried in the bass. I helped with my half stack. You know what I mean? Like, so to not help loading gear or like set up my shit is 
infinitely frustrating to me because yeah a when you're anxious and you're getting ready to play a show keeping busy is helpful yeah you want to be able um, to set up b i don't have control because mm-hmm. to circle back to that other story about brian having all of my settings yeah all tour it's like my guitar sounds so trebly so it's so crunchy like it's never it's usually like really fat and like like kind of like a big butted you know okay. it's like a yeah it's like a nice my guitar sounds like it's a nice round butt like that's the only way <laughs> like I want it to I want it to have some weight to it yeah and it was just so trebly and crunchy and um I was like can you check my settings it's just something he's like yeah it's according to this mm-hmm. everything's right and then we got back and our first practice mm-hmm. he had the setting upside down oh no so the setting happened wrong yeah and I was validated but also like so frustrated because yeah you know if I had been able to get up to my aunt myself mm-hmm. I could have just changed you know what I mean so that part's frustrating and also um you know they just see me kind of you know swimming around the empty space in front of the stage on my scooter just kind of like trolling back and forth <laughs> like watching them set up my shit and they don't think that I until we do sound check like they don't know that I'm part of that I'm part of the band. Yeah, so, um, I think it's also my responsibility to normalize. You know. Sure, I think you're definitely doing your part with that because I know for me, just from meeting people across music now, I never assume somebody is or isn't in the band anymore. Ever, over, I'd say easily over the past like 10, 15 years, I've figured that out, and it's just like you know, you never know. Yeah. Who's gonna blow your mind? And yeah. don't like ever assume anything about anyone because they just might surprise you. You're right. It's, it's and it's incredible. You can't assume that, and um, you know, going back to you know, oh, aren't we done with this now? Like mm-hmm. with women, and, and I was still even in space, like even like three, two, three years ago, where my immediate reaction was to tear tear someone down. You know, because that's how women have been socialized. Yeah. To treat other women as competition. And when there's less women in a scene that you're operating in, there's more opportunity for them to be visible than you. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that that immediate that immediate defense mechanism. Yeah. Bitch, you know, she's a bitch, she's slut, you know what I mean? Like and and as a teenager you get you get taught that, yeah, you you're know. just manipulated yeah. by the way that culture is, unfortunately. Yeah. And it took, I'll be honest with you, it took me a long time. And yeah. I'm never like a mean or catty, just just severely insecure. You well, know? everybody goes through that, you know, at any yeah. point in life. Yeah. And you have to like desocialize yourself from all that thought pattern and stuff. And yeah, that. and it becomes more about solidarity yep. than, you know, and support than being afraid that, you know, your voice will be, um, quieter. Yeah. Because there's other people making noise. Yeah. I can tell you that doing this podcast has actually made me more open to that thought than I ever was before because it's like, I realized I'm like, okay, nobody's voice gets lost. Everybody's voices get louder together kind of thing. Yeah. And that's like a special experience. And I'm so grateful that like, you know, women, non-men in general, and like even people of color are starting to kind of 
build that upon each other. That's one of the most exciting things about like DIY right now is mm-hmm. just people of different backgrounds are starting to lift each other up more rather than kind of like sidelining each other. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the positive things you can hold on to in yeah. these times, you know? Yeah, and I think that I think that's a credit to the younger generations. Yeah. Because um, I think that there's an old ethos about being, you know, a surly, crusty punk. Yeah. You know what I mean? And just yeah. being opinionated. Um, and there's something to be said for that. But there's also um, part of the beauty of punk rock is, is embracing what is different about everyone. So, Absolutely. You know? And finding community in that too, mm-hmm. you know. So I don't know. I mean, it gets you know punk rock. You know, you yeah. Can, you can get snobby. You can get a little sceny. You know, definitely it happens. Snarky, you know, <laughs> it happens. But um, I think that Keith and I have just operated in this place for such a long time. It's mm-hmm. just part of how we function. Yeah. You know. Um, sucked that we had to get away from the label stuff mm-hmm. um but you know we just didn't we don't we don't have the availability the funds you know we'd rather spend our money on something else you yeah know? um if we don't have the distribution and we're not going to be able to sell the product then yeah um our house is not even a thousand square feet i mean we personally invested tens of thousands over the years. I mean, like, sure. Not, like, a, no, like a rolling <laughs> money or anything, you know. But, yeah. Um, so, you know, sometimes it becomes more about, like, how important is it that you want to do this mm-hmm. versus how much money are you spending? And, you know, it, if it made sense to us financially, I think we would still be putting records out. But right now, we're just going to roll with the momentum of the band. Yeah. We're talking about more tours next year and... That would be amazing. So, I don't even have a passport, you know. Guess it's um, time. Um, <laughs> That'll <laughs> like, be great, though. It'll pay to get it expedited or whatever, because yeah. I don't know how long it takes. Um, it's usually not too bad. It only took me, like, I think two months to get mine, so it wasn't too crazy. And I, d- I didn't expedite it. It was oh, just regular, okay. so. Yeah. It goes through pretty quickly, usually, at least for the passports process and everything. Cool. But, no, that's exciting. I'm, I'm definitely hoping that that opportunity comes for you. Yeah. What are some other things you really want to accomplish with Poco over maybe the next year? Uh, we're going to keep writing. Mm-hmm. And um, I'd like to make another record. Well, it's not going to happen next year. Yeah. Because um, it's just taking time off to tour. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been with the same company since 2007, so I get like five weeks of PTO. Okay, <laughs> so nice. That's awesome. Um, and Brian has, he works at USF, so he's got a normal job with vacation, but, you know, Keith runs the record store, and, and um, Matt's a bartender, so you got to kind of, like, plan in advance mm-hmm. for time flex away, your time. you know, um, so I'll just keep writing, and we'll work on the record, you know, um, but I think next year we just want to, we want to play more, um, playing Rock the Park in a few weeks. Oh, yeah, I saw that announcement. Um, That'll be fun. It's going to be a good show. And the weather will be hopefully gorgeous. Yeah. It's, like, the perfect time of year for it. Absolutely. Um, he wants to play 45 minutes, which is a really long time. It the is. The record is only, like, 37 minutes. <laughs> it's like, ah. Oh, okay. Just talk a lot in between oh, I'm songs. So <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm so glad. 
tune in. Keith's talking. Gotcha. Take I turns. Ba- <laughs> I babble and I go off on. It's super awkward and like it's just, <laughs> just like ugh. So that's the rule. That's I'm funny. Not There you go. That's fun. Well, I'm very excited to hear new music maybe at some point and continue to follow all the local shows and stuff. I've had a blast watching you at like the Emo Night Show and then awesome. all the different ones that pop up here and there. So yeah. everybody who's local, definitely check out Pogo Live if you can and yeah. keep an eye out for tour dates because that'll yeah. be cool. Um, where can everybody keep up with you on the internet and find your music? Um, we're on we're online. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We have SoundCloud. We're on Spotify. So the cool thing about our name is that nobody spells Pogo that way. So if you just Google Pogo, you'll <laughs> get whatever you need. Um, you can, you know, thanks Kobe for the sixteen-year-old Kobe for coming up with such a silly name. Yeah, it's pre-internet, and now it's like, who names their band Pogo? You know, it's perfect. You know, at least my band's not tennis, right? <laughs> <laughs> like all the other sports no, emo names. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So yeah, you're just gonna. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Susie. It's been awesome. Likewise. This is not my body, not my skin and bones. And the hardest part about it is I
You just heard Pogo. Thank you so much to Susie for inviting me to your gorgeous home and for all the sweet hangs with your cat. It was awesome exploring Susie's personal journey in music and life, and I can't wait for the new music on the horizon for Pogo. Make sure that you check out Secret Club and follow the band on all social media platforms. That's it for this week, but you can always keep up with me online. Follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for regular updates. Subscribe and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Google Play, Pocket Cast, Overcast, and more. Want to tell me what you think of the podcast? Leave a review on any of the apps. I'd love to hear from you. I'm always booking guest spots, so hit me up at angrygirlmusic at gmail.com. Whether you write and play music, run a blog, take photos, work in publicity, or book shows, this can be a space for you. Send me a link to your work, and let's chat. Until next time, stay angry and listen to Secret Club. Mm-hmm.